I think what I love about the passage tonight is everybody I know struggles with prayer. I don't think there's anything that will get you to a point of shame more than asking you about your prayer life. If you're a Christian, particularly if you've been a Christian a long time, and somebody says, tell me about your prayer life, most Christians I know will feel somewhat ashamed of that. There's lots of reasons, you know, why we struggle with prayer. That's not my topic tonight. But I, I do want us to look here at this passage tonight as a beautiful picture of the kind of prayer that, that the New Testament teaches us about. And I actually hope that one of the results of tonight is you could even learn a little bit more about prayer and um, its importance, but also even some practical steps in how to move forward with it. It is important that we don't just learn about God, but we actually commune with God. We talk, I remember when I was in ninth grade, it was the first time I'd been raised in a Christian church, but it was a church where we never talked about the idea of having a personal relationship with Christ. I remember the first time I heard that phrase, it really kind of wigged me out, weirded me out a little bit. I was like, that just seems very foreign to the way I understand religion. Um, but I've come to understand that I think that that's a deeply biblical and historic understanding of Christianity. It's about this personal relationship, but it's hard to have a very healthy relationship if you never talk to somebody, right? And at one level, I, I love my friend Charlie Peacock. I love the way he defined prayer one time I heard him. He said, prayer is a matter of speaking to our Father about matters of mutual concern. Prayer starts with understanding that for the Christian, you have a Father who cares about the things that you care about. Now, part of growing in prayer is actually learning about the kinds of things that really capture the heart of God, so that you're not always praying, wondering if it's God's will. And I think a lot of people sort of get hung up on that sometimes. Here in this passage, we have really some, some great guidance and wisdom and a model of what prayer in the Bible really centers on. And i got to tell you, it's different than a lot of the way Christians I know pray. A lot of the people I know have been taught to pray like basically a laundry list of things, and um, when we come to this passage of Scripture, we find kind of a different model here. And I think it's worth considering. So what we're, going, what we're doing here, Paul has heard about the faith of these people in Ephesus. Now, in the early church, there were people from a Jewish background, ethnic background, and then there were people who were non-Jewish. We call them Gentiles. And the Bible calls them Gentiles. That means anybody that wasn't Jewish. That was the way they thought of it in those days. And... This group of people in this place called Ephesus were not from a Jewish background. And Paul has evidently heard about their faith. He had spent time in Ephesus, so we think most likely the people he's writing to had maybe come to faith after he had left. Either that or he got a report of the people he knew, and he's just encouraged. But I want to hear, I want us to see here, when Paul hears about the faith they have in God, what does he do? And what can we learn about it? That's the heart of what we're going to talk about tonight. When Paul hears about their faith in God, what does he do? What is, how does he respond? And what can we learn from that? So if you will, look with me at Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 15. Um, it really is a continuation of last week. The first section of Ephesians 1, Paul is sort of laying out this sort of glorious rehearsal or um, list of all the things 
that God has done. We talked about how salvation is bigger than you think. That God is working past, present, and future. Not just for little individual souls, but for a cosmic purpose. And we're going to pick up on some of that because as he gets into this prayer, he repeats some of these same ideas. But let's pick up our reading here at chapter 1, starting with verse 15. This is God's word. Paul says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Some grand and glorious thoughts and language there. Let's pray that God will help us as we dig into this section of his word. Lord, we do pray, even as we've just read Paul's prayer, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us through this portion of your word. That we would be encouraged, that we would be even trained in, in how better to pray. We pray, Lord, that you would help us send your spirit to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. So what does Paul do when he hears about their faith, and what can we learn from it? It's a pretty simple structure. Let's dive in. What does Paul do? Well, the first thing he does is he thanks God. Now, this sort of picks up on what I was talking about last week. When Paul hears that they have come to faith, and it seems to be a genuine faith because it's expressed in love for God's people. It's not just sort of mental assent to some particular ideas. It's a faith that has actually affected them. When he hears about it, the first thing he does is thanks God. Now, that may not seem very significant to you, but I do want to make sure that we don't pass this point too quickly. Paul teaches us here to give credit where credit is due. Everywhere the Bible talks about faith, it speaks of it as something that God gives us as a gift, not as some innate ability that we have, that all we have to do is use it whenever we want. The Bible regularly talks about faith as a gift of God. We're going to talk about this again in chapter 2. It's actually one of the clearest places in the Bible in Ephesians chapter 2 next week about faith is a gift of God. Lest, Paul says in chapter 2 of Ephesians, any one of us should boast. It is by grace you have been saved. It's not of yourselves. It's through faith. So he gives thanks where thanks is due. One of my favorite 
quotes along these lines is by this great Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, lived back in the 19th century. And Spurgeon said this, if ever you find faith in your heart, here's what you need to know. Faith is like an exotic plant that's not native to the soil of your heart. If you find it growing there, someone must have planted it. And Paul says that someone deserves our thanks and praise. I know that that seems basic, but but here's the thing. For Paul, theology and praise and prayer all go together. Paul doesn't just start out saying, well, I'm going to pray because I know I'm supposed to pray. He says, how can I not pray and give thanks to God for you when I heard about your faith? Because if you have faith, it's because God has exerted his mighty power. There's a great place in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, his first letter, where he says, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you because the gospel came to you not just with words, but with power and deep conviction. If you find your heart responding to the word of God, give thanks to God. Second, I guess, thing you could take from that is, if you want to have faith, well, then ask the one who can give it. So if you have faith, give thanks to him. Give credit where credit is due. Do you ever do that? Have you ever sat down and said, God, thank you for what you've done? And if you don't have faith, or if you long for somebody that you know and love to have faith, ask the one who can give it. If he is the one to whom we should give thanks for faith, then he is the one whom we can ask for faith. Now in our day and age, we don't think about this very much, but most of Christian history, Christian people have thought that there was sort of a stage you could be in where you knew things about God, and even wanted to have a relationship with God, but felt that you weren't there yet. And and, and what Paul would say is, ask God to give you faith. Charles Spurgeon, that Baptist preacher that I mentioned, he used to say to people at the end of his sermons, pray that God would convert you. Pray that God would convert you. I remember years ago, um, you know, here's the thing, you know, most people believe in the sovereignty of God when they pray. And even if sometimes they get up off their knees and they argue about it, you know, people have these theological debates about God's sovereignty, man's free will, and all this kind of stuff. I remember one time being in a little Bible study group. It was when I first moved to Nashville. It was the only time I've ever been in a setting where the leader of the Bible study actually prayed in a way consistent with his theology. Now, he did not believe in the sovereignty of God. And unlike most people that say they don't believe it, but still pray for God to change people's hearts. This guy, I remember asking him to pray for somebody that I loved. And here's how he would pray. He refused to pray other than this. Lord, send harvesters. I thought, really? That's the best you can do? No, I want you to pray that God would change the heart of this person. The Bible teaches that God changes hearts. We should thank him. When we find our heart changed, we should ask him when we need our heart to be changed. But then what else does does Paul pray for? Look down here in verse 17. When you get into what he's actually asking, it's fascinating. They've come to know God. Their faith is being shown in their love. So he thanks God, but then he prays for them 
for more. They already have relationship with God. They already have life where there was death in their relationship with God. Now there's life, but what does he pray? Look at verse 17. I keep asking, and that's the sense of over and over again. This isn't just one time I prayed for you. But he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Paul prays for them to know more of God and his purposes. In other words, salvation is not enough. I know there are a lot of places, a lot of Christian churches where you seem to get the impression that all they care about is that you get saved and then that you run around and try to get other people saved and a lot of times evangelism is pressed on people like it's this duty and you got to you know get some notches in your belt but what Paul models for us here is even people who have come into a saving relationship with God still need to be prayed for that they would know him better you never outgrow your need For your eyes to be open to see more of who God is and what his glorious purposes are. So Paul thanks God first for what he has done in converting them. And then he tells the Ephesians that he regularly prays for them to know God better. Particularly, he wants them to know God better by knowing more about what he has done and what he's going to do. And you know, if you think about it, You always come to know a person better, including God, who is a person, by the way their character is revealed in their words and their deeds. Now, of course, with human beings, particularly sinful human beings, that's kind of a barrier. You say, yep, I thought you are worse than I thought you were. And I see that now because of your words and your deeds that reveal your character. Yeah, I'm sorry to say That is the reality with human beings. But when it comes to God, the way you understand him better is by getting to know his character revealed through what he's done, what he's planning on doing, and what he reveals about himself. In other words, just coming to faith doesn't mean that they've gotten where they need to be and where God wants them to be. They still still need to know God more. And Paul prays for them to know him more. And one of the things that means is, if you're not satisfied with your relationship with God, if you feel you don't know him like you would like to, well then be encouraged. Because what Paul models here is everybody needs to grow. And Paul models for us that we should be praying to God for that very thing. So if you feel like, you know, I've been a Christian for a long time, And I just don't feel like I've really grown very well. I feel like my faith is very weak. I feel like I don't live the way I should. I feel like I don't love God the way I should. Often I don't even think about him. I go days, weeks, and I don't even pray. Don't despair. Even tonight, say, God, I want to know you more. Would you open the eyes of my heart to be enlightened, to know who you are, your character, what you've done in the gospel, what you've given to me, And what you're planning to do, don't be discouraged. You can ask him for more. 
Paul tells us that, teaches us that. And we should be praying for our friends, not just that they get a job, not just that they find an apartment. All these kinds of things, those are fine to pray about. But if we never pray these sorts of things for our friends, we really are failing to love them. We really are failing to love them. Now notice, Paul does not pray for some kind of mystical knowledge devoid of content or doctrine. And I want to point this out because a lot of people seem to talk about the heart as sort of this separate way of knowing apart from the understanding. That's not what Paul is saying here. He talks about the eyes of your heart being enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. This hope, as he's going to talk about over and over again in Ephesians, is something that has a particular content to it. It's not just a feeling. Paul is not just praying that somehow in their heart they would have hope, devoid of content. No, he wants them to understand the hope. There's a particular hope that Christians have. And it's that God is not back down from his original purpose to create a whole cosmos that would glorify him and enjoy him forever. And even though sin entered the world and threatened to bring crashing down God's plan, he did not give up, but instead said, I will send my son, born of a woman, not just to save individual souls, but to start death working backward so that all things could be reconciled through Christ. That's the cosmic hope that Paul talks about here in Ephesians. When the Bible talks about the hope, when Paul prays that they would understand, know the hope, it's a particular story that they're in the midst of. It's not just a vague feeling. And as we go through this letter to Ephesians, he's going to unpack more about what that hope is. Now, notice what Paul's doing here. He's not just praying for some kind of mystical knowledge devoid of content or doctrine. What he's actually praying is that they would appropriate I don't know if you use that word very much in regular speech. Appropriate means to lay hold of, to grab a hold of and use the blessings that they've already been given. See, here's the interesting thing is, look at how he describes this hope. He says in verse 18, that you may know the hope to which he has called you. So the hope is something that already exists And by being brought into new life with God, they've been brought into the hope. They've been brought up, caught up in the story of what God is doing. So they already have it. When they become reconciled to God, they get caught up into the purposes, the hope that he is revealing. It's not like they need to have hope. They're already part of it. But he wants them to know more about it. Because again, The way that you come to know a person better is through understanding what are the things that they really care about. Their character gets revealed through what they've done and what they're going to do and the things that they love and the things that they're committed to. And that's what Paul wants these people and wants all of us to understand. So they've been brought into this hope, this plan that he's working out. Look at this. He says he's given them, verse 19, incomparably great power. For those who believe. Doesn't matter how strong you believe. Because it's not the strength of your faith that matters. It's the object of your faith. And Paul says here. If you have come to a relationship with God. You have been given incomparably great power. Now 
You have it. But he wants them to understand what they already have. They don't get it. They don't get it. And neither do I and neither do you. And then he wants them to understand that God has made them his glorious inheritance. It's a very interesting phrase, the, verse, the end of verse 18. It says, I want you to know the riches of his, that is God's glorious inheritance, in his holy people. There's actually a pretty unique phrase here. Very often, the Bible speaks about us, sorry, God being our inheritance. There's regular places in the Old Testament where it talks about how God will be our inheritance, and that's a precious thing. What you, what we made for, you know that, that song we sang, Hast thou not seen how all your longings have been granted in what he ordaineth? God made us for himself, St. Augustine says, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in him. But here, it's actually a different way of thinking of this image. Here, Paul is saying to us that you and I, if you're a Christian, you're God's inheritance. You're the thing that God is excited to have as a precious gift. Can your heart get around that? Can your heart get around the idea that you, like we sang in that song, that he would make a wretch his treasure? That's what the gospel is saying. That's what Paul's saying here. Here's what I want you to understand, Ephesians. Here's what I want you to understand tonight. If you are a Christian, God has made you his inheritance, his treasure, the thing that he's so excited about. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> now, gifts are meant to be opened and enjoyed. When you're a dad, especially if gifts are your love language like mine are, like Christmas is so fun to see the kids open their presents. I, you know, it's fine. They bring me over my little presents and I just sit them in a stack. I want to watch every one of them. Sometimes I wish that they would take turns so that I could see the joy on each of their faces as they unwrap each gift. And yes, my wife and I fight every year because I, I want to buy them way more things than I should. But there's something, about, there's something about this. Gifts are not meant to stay wrapped under the tree. And do you see, that's the heart of what Paul's saying here. You've been given these great gifts. You've been brought into a hope beyond what you could, your wildest dreams could ever imagine. You've been given incomparably great power. The same power that raised Christ from the dead. And you've been made God's inheritance. His special treasured possession. And I want you to enjoy these gifts. I pray that your eyes will be open, that you would understand what you've been given. And you don't have the ability to understand it on your own. I'm praying that God would help you see and understand what this is about. Now imagine how this must have sounded to these Ephesian Christians. So I don't know if you know this or not. It's kind of hard to put us, ourselves back in this kind of place. But these Christians in Ephesus, they were not from a Jewish background. They're a tiny little sect, far from Jerusalem. Maybe some of you have grown up in places where you didn't really know very many Christians. I guarantee you, they knew less Christians than you did. Like, they're this tiny little group of people. And they get this letter from the Apostle Paul saying, you are God's great 
inheritance. You, this tiny, insignificant little group. You have this incomparably great power in you. And I pray that you would come to understand God and his plan and his purposes better. Because things are not what they seem right now. What do we learn from this? The first thing we learn is a lesson about hope. We must never be discouraged by what we see and experience at present. Look at verse 19. He talks about how we have this incomparably great power for us who believe. And then he says, that power, that power that you have, is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that's invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is a remarkable statement. Here's what Paul's saying. God has raised Christ from the dead. He's ascended to the right hand of God the Father, a place of authority. The right hand in the Bible is your hand of strength. And so whatever is at your right hand is the position of honor and strength. And that's where Christ is. And he right now rules over all things, over all powers, over all authorities, over everything. But it sure doesn't seem like that to a tiny little group of Christians in Ephesus. But Paul is saying, I don't care what it looks like. This is what's true. This is what's true. And God is committed to bringing all of this authority that Christ has, bringing it to fruition one day. All history is heading toward the day when every knee shall bow. Some willingly and some not so willingly. But make no mistake, there is a throne in heaven and it's occupied, no matter what it looks like now. The only way that you begin to believe that is if you start thanking God for it now. And that's what Paul's teaching us here. You have to immerse yourself in the character of God and the purpose of God that he's revealed so that your heart starts to tune to it. I love that phrase in Come Now Found. Tune my heart to sing your grace. We might say from this, Lord, we pray that you would tune our hearts to hope and believe that you will accomplish the purposes that you've laid out. No matter what it looks like now. No matter how weak and foolish I seem to be. And you say you're going to do it for your church? What are you thinking, God? <laughs> your church is the biggest group of idiots and hypocrites that I know. Nobody thinks very well of the church in our day and age. What are you thinking? And God says, don't worry, there's a throne in heaven, it's occupied. Jesus is Lord over all things and his purposes will prevail. And you need to get used to thanking God for it because one day you will see it. It's true now, but one day you will see it. I was thinking about this as I went and saw that movie Selma yesterday, and I saw a few of you there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Boy, it was a great movie. Y'all really need to see that movie. But what I thought was, was fascinating is, is to think about this, this movie, right? It's about Martin Luther King and the march from Selma and 
just the persecution. It was brutal. Um, you know, really heart-wrenching movie. There was one particular thing that I, that I loved, which was the way the sorrow songs, it was uh, W. Du Bois called, you know, the, the slave songs, the sorrow songs. I've always loved that, that way of thinking about them. These songs born out of just unimaginable suffering. And it's the soundtrack to this movie. And there's one point where um, Dr. King goes in to comfort a father whose son has been killed. Do you remember what he said if you were there? He says, God was the first one to weep. And I thought, what a beautiful thing to say to somebody in the midst of the suffering. God was the first one to weep. You understand that only by understanding the character of God. Dr. King showed himself to be a man who was deeply immersed in the character of God. And in the midst of the sorrow, he knows God was the first one to weep. And so you have these sorrow songs as the soundtrack. But eventually, there's this other theme that comes through, which is God's purposes will prevail. And now the sorrow song turns into, we shall overcome. And you see, it's knowing the character of God that gives birth to hope. Because the purposes of God are really... Meaningless promises if they're not anchored in the character of God. The one who makes and keeps his promises. The one who holds all power in his hand. The one who is committed to breaking the curse and all the effects of death and sin wherever they're found. We can have hope because God is the one who wept first and God is the one who will prevail and wipe away every tear. And we live in the middle of that, don't we? We live in the middle of that. We live after the cross when Jesus suffered on a cross. He wept tears that none of us could weep. Oh, it's one thing to suffer. It's another thing to suffer having never known suffering or evil. Having never sinned and still being judged as a sinner. And then to be raised from the dead is God's sign that death is not the end. And so the character of God gives birth to hope. Have you ever prayed <laughs> this way? Prayed the character of God into your heart so that you could be fortified, even in the midst of the struggle, that the purposes of God will prevail. Oh, I don't know what's going to happen in your life tomorrow, next year. I don't know. But I know the purposes of God will prevail. And I know that what you need in the midst of the struggle as we await God's unfolding purposes is you need to know the character of God. The one who's the first one to weep and the one who will wipe away all our tears. Let me just show you how to pray this prayer. You want to know more of his character so that you can have more confidence in his purposes? Well, there's a long practice that Christians have done where they take passages of Scripture as the basis for prayer. Now, I don't know about you. When I became a Christian around ninth or 10th grade, the way I was taught to pray, it was completely divorced from reading the Bible. And I came later to find out that that's not generally historically how Christians have prayed. Historically, Christians have prayed the Scripture as a way of having a dialogue with God. 
And if you've never done that, let me just explain to you just real briefly about this. This is actually a really great passage to start. There are some passages in the Bible that are kind of hard to figure out how to pray them as a dialogue with God. But this one is a really easy one. It's one of the best ones to start with. Because you don't have to worry about, well, am I praying in accordance with God's will? Like when you pray scripture prayers, you know you're praying in accordance with God's will. So a Christian, you know, who, who would pray in this way, it's sometimes called the Lectio Divino. Sometimes it's called formative reading. And it's the difference between reading the Bible and asking questions of it, which is the way you've been taught to read in school. But it's not necessarily the way you have a relationship with the one who wrote what you're reading. The Lectio Divino way is letting the text ask questions of you. So it, would, it would, might start like this. I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering in you in my prayers. God, the first thing I have to say is I confess that I forget to pray all the time. I don't think much about my friends. I don't pray for them. I don't give thanks. I complain a lot. But how often do I give thanks? It's certainly not true of me to say I've not stopped giving thanks. And yet, Lord, thank you for the reminder that I am not made precious to you because I pray so well or so often, but I'm made precious to you because of what you've done in Christ. You see, you can pray every verse of the Bible. God speaks it to you, and then you respond. And you pray, thank you. You pray, I'm sorry. You pray, help me. And you pray, glory be to God. And then you go on to the next verse when you run out of steam. I keep asking, Paul says, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of revelation so that you may know him better. Lord, I want that. I think. <laughs> I don't know if I really do. I'm afraid of what that might mean. You might ask me to do something I don't want to do. So maybe I'd rather keep you on the periphery. Just enough of you to be satisfied that I'll go to heaven when I die, but not enough of you that you're going to disrupt my life. And I want to confess that. And I pray, Lord, I believe. Help me in my own belief that knowing you better is really good for me. And it's good for my friends. And even now I want to think about so-and-so and so-and-so that need to know you better. And you go on and you go on like that. I want to encourage you, if you struggle with prayer, particularly if you struggle with like wandering thoughts in prayer, this is a great way to start. A great way to start. And this is a great passage to do it. Uh, this guy, George Muller. Now, George Muller is a great um, guy, lived back in the 1800s. And he started this um, great orphanage in London, wrote different books. I love his description of this kind of prayer, and I'll, I'll close with this. He talks about how I began to meditate on the New Testament from the beginning, early in the morning, searching, as it were, every verse to get a blessing out of it. Not for preaching to others, but for obtaining food for my soul. After a few minutes, my soul had been led to confession or thanksgiving or intercession. That's like asking for something for yourself or somebody else. And when thus I have been for a while, I go to the next words of the verse, turning all as I go into prayer as the word may lead it, but still continually keeping before me that food for my own soul as the object of my meditation. It often astonishes me that I did not sooner see this point. I remember for myself, I was reading in college, I was about your age, I'd found this little book by a guy named Robert Murray McShane. I didn't know anything about it. It impacted me so much that I named my first son Cooper McShane. 
And my wife, you know, was gracious to let me name our middle kid McShane, our first son McShane. But I'm telling you, there's a section in that, in that book. It's basically his prayer journal. He was a guy who lived in Scotland in the 1800s. He died when he was 29. And I didn't know anything about him. I just picked up this book because it stuck out. It was red, you know, in, in sort of a whole bookcase full of brown books. And I was like, that's interesting. Uh, and he's a Presbyterian. I don't know much about Presbyterians, but my parents go to a Presbyterian church. I guess they seem all right. But I was struck by the fact that he died before he was 30. I was like, if they wrote a book about the guy before he was 30, there must be some significance to his life. It was $2.50. I bought it. And I remember getting partway into that book and finding there's a section there, five-page section, where he basically does this. I'd never heard of this before. I'd never heard about this. But I, trust me, this is such a helpful thing to do. Because when you're praying the scripture, what are you doing? You're feeding on the character of God revealed in his word and in his deeds. It keeps you focused where the focus needs to be. And then you can pray for things like, I want to get into grad school. But you pray for it differently when you've come to rest in the character of God, the one who can be trusted. Martin Luther said one time, I know not where he leads, but well do I know my guide. And I pray that our prayers would be an example of us knowing our guide better and better so that we could trust him and hope for more than we can see according to his purposes. Let's pray together.